welcome if you have just joined us to New Life Church, and uh, thank you for visiting us, and welcome to all of our members this morning as we study the Word of God together. Um, even though we are still apart, we are able to use this medium to be able to teach the Word and to preach the Word, and we are grateful that you could join us this morning. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been studying together the promise of Christmas from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. After explaining that Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit, the angel Gabriel told Joseph in chapter 1, verse 21, that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So the Christmas story is not primarily about the birth of a baby who would grow up to become a great moral teacher and example, although Jesus did become those things. Rather, the, the Christmas story is the profound story of the birth of the Savior. And the Hebrew name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. And if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, then you don't really know Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus came to save His people from their sins. And this morning we're going to look again at this wonderful promise here in the Scriptures from Matthew chapter 1. And if you would read with me, we will read from verse 18 to verse 25. Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So last week, Pedro showed us the expulsive power of a new life and a new creation in Christ, and he showed us that the, the promise of Christmas is a promise to overcome sin and to walk more and more in holiness, being conformed more and more to the, the image of Christ. And Pedro quoted Thomas uh, Chalmers, a Scottish minister who wrote a Christian classic book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. If you can get your hands on that, I would highly recommend that book to you. And this is what he said in the book. The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. And by the love of what is good, to the expel the love of what is evil. That was basically Pedro's message last week. The best way of overcoming sinful habits is to love what is good. And today I want to start my message by quoting one of my favorite um, theologians, J.C. Ryle, who said the following. He said, 
I'm convinced that the first step towards attaining a higher standard of holiness is to realize more fully the amazing sinfulness of sin. So the promise of Christmas is not only a promise to save us from the judgment of our sin, but also a promise for us to overcome our sinful habits. And we will never quite fully understand the extent of this promise until we first understand the seriousness of our problem. And I'm convinced that a biblical grasp of the promise here in Matthew 121 will help us put our eyes back on Christ our Savior, who will save us from our sins. So my first point this morning is the promise that is explosive, the promise that is powerful. And we see that in verse 21. He shall save his people from their sins. This is a promise. It's not a suggestion. This deals powerfully and, and radically and permanently with our problem of sin. And we see here that man's predicament is very serious. We have a, a serious problem. The Bible tells us that we are under the, the wrath of God. In fact, Romans 1 verse 18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that's the bad news. That's the bad news. We are, we are in a terrible situation. Our situation is, is serious. And the very nature of the gospel defines that we are, in fact, sinners. And should we deny that fact and ignore that fact, we deceive ourselves. We completely fool ourselves. And in all ages, there have been people who have been pretending or attempting to justify their, their conduct, who have felt they, that they don't need a Savior because they don't believe that they are sinners, and they have maintained that they have the right to do what they please because they are their own ruler, their own law. And there are those who pretend to be perfectly sanctified, legalistic but perfectly sanctified, and claim that they live without sin. Now think about the word save, though, for a moment that we just read. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Well, save is a, is, is a powerful word. It's a radical word. You do not save someone who just needs a, a little bit of help. You save someone who is unable to do anything to save himself. A person who is lost at sea needs saving. A person who has stopped breathing needs saving. So this means that before Jesus saves anybody... His people are all lost. They are all out to sea. They are drowning under that sea of water. They are lost completely, hopelessly in their sins. And they were alienated from God. And we were under His righteous judgment. And unable to free ourselves from this, this terrible predicament, this terrible condition. And then the Savior comes along. And the Savior is the one who has the power to rescue people who could not and will not rescue themselves. And Jesus has the God-given power to save his people from their sins. 
And we need to admit our spiritual condition before this bad news becomes good news. Before we are able to understand the good news of this Christmas promise, we need to admit the painful and humiliating truth that we are indeed sinners. That we need the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And we are born into this world and sinners as sinners and and we live from that moment under the very condemnation of God. And think about that. At any moment and at any time, we can be taken into eternity. And if the problem of our sinful condition has not been sorted out, we will suffer eternal separation from God. And that is a serious problem. That is a serious predicament. One theologian said, men are opposed to God in their sin, and God is opposed to man in his holiness. God is holy, three times holy, holy. Because he is holy, we, we, we cannot have fellowship with him as sinful creatures. Light cannot have fellowship with darkness. Oil will never mix with water. This is a problem. We are alienated from God in His holiness and in our sinfulness. And the problem is great. But there is a solution. There is good news. And this is the promise of Christmas that we are preaching this morning. R.C. Sproul, he stated once that the one from whom we need to be saved is the one who has saved us. Let me read that again. The one from whom... We need to be saved is the one who has saved us. So what solution would God provide for our problem? Well, the Christmas story is the solution to this problem. God would become man himself. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice, as one theologian said. In Romans chapter 1, which we looked at earlier on, verse 18, speaks of the wrath of God as being exercised against the ungodly. But the good news, as we see in the verses before, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, the good news is this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the apostle Paul writes, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There in verse 16, the word power is a translation of the Greek word uh, dunamis. And that's where we get our English word dynamic from, and even dynamite from. Though dynamite was obviously not on the apostle's mind when he wrote that. There wasn't dynamite at that time. The power of the promise was indeed explosive. And I think the apostle Paul had an understanding of that powerful word that he was using. Because we are in a serious predicament, a terrible problem. The solution to that problem needs to be even more powerful. And the solution to that problem was provided by God himself. And what a promise that is for us to live by throughout this year. And the solution is powerfully certain. 
Matthew 121 tells us, He shall save His people from their sins. Because the promise is, is God's work, <laughs> there is hope for all without distinction. doesn't matter if we're green, yellow, black, or white. There is hope for all without distinction, young or old. All God's people will be saved, whether they be morally upright citizens or whether they be hardened criminals. The promise is for all of God's people. The promise is not just for a group of, of super saints, but for God's people. The Apostle John tells us who this promise is for, and this is worth looking at. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to take your pens in. First John chapter 1. I want you to notice how many times the plural word is used, we or our or us, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. The Bible says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie. Three times there. And do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another five times. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Notice the plural words that are being used there, folks. This is not just a promise for a certain amount of people, not just for a, a certain group of super saints. This is for God's people that he has chosen to be his children. On November the 26th, sorry, in February 26th in 1993, a car bomb was, was detonated in an underground parking garage of the World Trade Center in New York City. And rumor has it that one of the men imprisoned for this attack was given a Bible while he was in jail. He read the Bible, he understood the message of the gospel, and he repented of his sins and he came to faith in Christ. I do not know how true the, the rumor is, but but I have no problem whatsoever believing this. The gospel is explosive. The gospel is powerful. The Bible says he shall save his people from their sins. It doesn't matter how hardened that criminal may be. The power has, of the gospel has the power to overcome that. God's saving power will reach those who he intends to save. Whoever they are and whatever they have done. There is no sin which God's people will not be forgiven for. A striking biblical example of God's explosive power is, is, by, is in the example of the Apostle Paul himself. So before Paul became the Apostle, his name was Saul. And he was most famous for persecuting the early church. He was single-handedly responsible for scattering the Christian church from Jerusalem across the Roman Empire, that's how scared the Christians were of Saul. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy that he was a blasphemer, that he was a persecutor, and that he was injurious to many, many people. 
The Bible tells us God saved him from his sins. Saul, the murderer of Christians, became one of the most famous missionaries. And the weapons of destruction were turned into weapons of construction. And I wonder, Paul could write these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He fully believed it, and he fully understood that the gospel has the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So let's apply this for a moment. Let's not just put this in our heads and, and make this academic. Let's, let's apply this. Now, we need to take comfort in this powerful promise this morning that God will save His people from their sins. And I've prayed many years for the lost loved ones of, of church members. I've prayed for lost husbands and, and lost wives and lost children and lost parents. I pray for my own family members who are still lost. And I continue to pray fervently as ever before because I believe in the promise of the gospel. I believe that God will save his people from their sins. And what greater encouragement should we have than to pray these promises? So be encouraged, folks, even this Christmas. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Keep praying. Be persistent that God's gospel has the power to overcome any hardened heart. He will save His people from their sins. And that leads to my second point this morning. That the promise is expensive. The promise is expensive. There again in verse 21. You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. I try to imagine the um, angel Gabriel saying these words to Joseph. I'm sure that all the angels understood something of what the, the redemption would cost. And as Gabriel spoke these, these words, he must have spoken them with a, with a croaking, heavy voice, knowing very well what was in store for the very Son of God. Remember, angels could not save humanity. They didn't have the power to do that. They were created beings. Angels could not pay the debt that man owed. The debt was so great that only God could pay this terrible debt. And the truth of the Christmas promise is great because of its price. The very body and the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, that God ransomed us. He ransomed us. But what does that mean? What does it, what does it actually mean? Well, the Oxford Dictionary defines ransom as a sum of money demanded or paid for the release of a captive. I'm sure we've all seen the movies and we've all seen the scene where a ransom is paid to the, to the criminals in order to release the, the hostage. But that's the idea here. Someone pays the ransom price in the place of others to flee from captivity, to free them from captivity. 
And ransom in the Bible is not very different, but the price is greater. The price is greater. The price or payment made for our redemption and the delivery from the penalty of our enslavement to sin is not dirhams or dollars or gold and silver. It is the very precious blood of Jesus Christ. The very blood of Jesus Christ. It was with the most precious currency that there is, the blood of Jesus. And Jesus paid that price to free us. And now we are free if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ and repented of our sins. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that Jesus came while we were his enemies. He didn't come after we had done something great or after we had done something to deserve this ransom. Jesus came to pay that ransom while we were still his enemies. He came to us while we were in the chains of the, the devil and in the grip of this world. He came and he set us free, free from the slavery of sin, free from the chains of the evil one, free from the grip of this world and the bondage of our fleshly lust and our desires. And he did this all while he was without sin. And the promise of Christmas starts when Jesus was born as a virgin without sin. He grew up without sin. He lived a life for 33 years perfectly without sin. Even though he was tempted like you and I were, it was all without sin. But that was not enough. If Christ had just shed his blood as a man, we would be, of all people, most pitied. But thank God that the cross was not the end. For after three days and three nights in the grave, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And his death proved to us that he was a man. He wasn't just a, a spiritual being that just, that just moved along the earth. He was a real person, a human being. But that he didn't just die proves to us something else. The fact that he rose from the grave proves to us that he's not just, an, not just a man. He is, in fact, God as well. He was the God-man. And only the God-man could save men from their sins. As one man has stated, Jesus Christ, being God, made sure that his redemptive price had infinite, infinite value. But let's consider for a moment the suffering that Christ had to endure for our redemption. In many ways, Jesus Christ suffered not just on the cross. He suffered for 33 years. He suffered in Gethsemane. He suffered on the cross. And perhaps his suffering was at its peak when he cried out to the Lord, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ossie Sproul, he states this case very powerfully. He says, He must not only be executed by man, he must be abandoned by God. Let's not think that Jesus just felt forsaken here, folks. The very essence of the cross was the utter forsakenness of Christ. 
by God himself. God had to turn away from his son because he had the sins of the world on his shoulders. God had to turn away from his only begotten son. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think the pit of hell is the very essence of God forsaking us. The pit of hell is the very abode of those who are utterly forsaken. To be forsaken by God is the ultimate penalty for sin. He took upon himself the curse of violating the law. Though he himself had had never sinned, never broken one single law, he was forsaken for our salvation, for our sins. And I want you to consider this this morning, folks. Even though our salvation is free, and we speak about that a lot, we don't have to earn our salvation. But understand the price that was paid. Our salvation is indeed free, but it is not cheap. It cost Jesus Christ his life and caused him to be abandoned by his Father as he suffered the weight of all our sin. C.J. Mahaney pastor in the U.S. tells a story of a, of a pastor friend of his who called him one day to relate a devastating experience that he had had. A man in his church had been showing his son how to clean a gun. And while they were busy cleaning, the weapon fired and it killed his son. And the pastor had spent hours at the man's side not knowing exactly quite what to say. But then he felt as if God had given him a message to, to give to this man. And he went and put his arm around the man and he said, God has told me to tell you this important truth. That he also killed his own son. But with him, it was no accident. I think that is so true. You know, there's a debate that goes on around the question, who killed Christ? Did the Romans kill him or did the Jews kill him? Well, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, in fact, it was God who killed Jesus. It was God who, tell, who killed Jesus. Acts 2.23 tells us that Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. I'm sure you've read John 3.16. But remember those words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It was God who did this. God so loved the world that he sent his son to save us from our sins. God being Jesus gave himself. God in the Trinity sent His Son to save us from, himself, from, from our sins, to save us from our sins. An article in the National Geographic several years ago told a story of a forest fire in Yellowstone National Park. 
And once the blaze was put out, the forest rangers began their trek up the mountain to see the damage that this, this fire had caused. And one ranger found a bird literally petrified in ashes, perched like a, a statue on the ground at the base of a tree. The ranger was a little sickened by this eerie sight, and he, he knocked off the, the dead bird with a, with a stick. But when he struck this bird, three tiny little chicks scurried from under their, their dead mother's wings. And the loving mother, keenly aware of the impending disaster, keenly aware of this fiery furnace, had carried her, her offspring to the base of that tree and had gathered them under her wings, instinctively knowing that the toxic smoke would rise and, and kill her. And this little bird could have flown away, could have saved herself, but she refused to abandon her little babies. And when the blaze had finally arrived and the heat had scorched her small body, the mother remained steadfast, giving her life for her chicks. Because she had been willing to die, those under the cover of her wings would live. I think there's a wonderful psalm that says exactly the same thing, doesn't it? Psalm 91. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. The angel Gabriel said to Joseph, You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was willing to die. He didn't go to the cross begrudgingly. Remember at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. He gave himself as a ransom for our sins. Jesus is God. God in the flesh. And he gave himself for us to redeem us. Christ didn't reach out into his, into his treasure bag or into his wallet he reached into himself, in the treasure of all treasures, and he set us free. The Bible says that we have been ransomed, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. Salvation is free, folks. But yet, it cost the very life of Jesus. It did not cost silver, gold, dirhams, or dollars. It cost the very blood of Jesus. And the promise of Christmas is expensive. It is expensive. The promise of Christmas is explosive. It is powerful. And once we understand how much we are loved by the King, this promise of Christmas should make all the difference in our lives. And that leads to my last point this morning. The promise is enabling the promise is enabling. The promise allows us to overcome. There's a story that's been told of Abraham Lincoln who went down to the slave block and then noticed a young black girl who was up for auction. And he was moved with compassion. And he bid and he won her. 
And upon purchasing her, Lincoln told this disbelieving young girl that, that she was free, that she could go. And of course, in her surprise and her shock, she asked him, well, what does it mean? And he replied, well, it means that you are free. Well, does it mean, she said, I can say whatever I want to say? And he said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. And she said, well, does it mean I can, I can be whatever I want to be? And he said, yes, you can be whatever you want to be. And then she said, well, does it mean I can go wherever I want to go? And Abraham Lincoln said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. And the girl, with tears streaming down her face, said to him, then I will go with you. And I will go with you. Now, we don't know how true that story is. It's a legend. But yet it does communicate an important spiritual truth. And like the young girl on that slave block, we too have been redeemed and we too have been set free. And the Bible reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, that if we are in Christ, we have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our fathers. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold or, or dirhams and dollars, but with the precious blood of Christ. Understand, folks, before Christ, we were already slaves to our sin. We were born as sinners. Our hearts, our souls, our bodies were captive to sin. I'm sure you've seen this in your own children. I don't think any parent has ever sat down their child and said, listen, I need to tell you, I need to teach you how you are to sin. Children sin. Nobody teaches them how to do it. They don't go to special classes to learn how to sin. It's part of their nature. We are born with this sin nature. And as we are born as sinners, we have no choice but to sin. But yet, unlike this slave girl, we loved our captivity. We held on to our sin. We reveled in our chains. And we lived in the foolishness of our, of our minds and in the bliss of our ignorance. And we relished every foolish, ignorant moment. We loved the world and we, we hated God. We loved the passions of our flesh and deemed God unnecessary and His word irre irrelevant. And we didn't want to change. We were quite happy sitting in the mud. We were lovers of ourselves rather than of God. We were on the broad road to hell and destruction. And we were happy to be there. And it was in this situation that the Lord came to save us from our sins. God ransomed us with the precious blood of Christ. And like the young slave girl, our desires should have changed. We should desire nothing more to live for and to live with the one who has purchased our salvation, who has redeemed us from that slavery. 
1 Peter 1, verse 14, tells us, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The Apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, reminds us that our priceless redemption should provide the motivation for our loving, joyful, holy obedience to God. We are called to holiness, not in order that we might be ransomed, but because we have been so graciously ransomed. And this Christmas, of all Christmases, I think you would agree that we are in need of hope. And the hope we need is found in the words of the angel Gabriel to Joseph. You are to give him the name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I think this year has shown us that as a human race, we certainly don't have things under control. But the promise of Christmas tells us that God does. That God is still fulfilling His promises. That God is still fulfilling His will on this earth. And I pray that the powerful, explosive promise of Christmas and the expensive promise of Christmas will motivate you and enable you to overcome sin and to live a holy life for God's glory and for your joy. He truly is worthy of all of our praise, folks. Let's bow down and worship with the angels, the King of all kings. Please pray with me. Father, this gospel promise really is so precious, Lord. We could dig down deep and deep and deep into this eternal promise that you have given your children. And I pray, Lord, that we would I pray, Lord, you would open our eyes and open our hearts to the truth of this promise that you give to us even today. And that we would remember what Christmas is all about. And that we would turn our face to you, Lord Jesus. And that we would bow our knee to you. And we would live lives that honor you. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed. Forgive us, Lord, where we have doubted your promise. Forgive us, Lord, where we have chosen to sin, even though we have been ransomed from our sin, even though we have been set free. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Help us, Lord, this week. May your word, may your gospel that we have heard again this morning motivate us to live for you, the one who has freed us from these chains. May we live lives this Christmas, Lord, this year that would honor you in our workplace, that would honor you in the school, that would honor you in the college, that would honor you in our homes. And when people look to us, we'll be able to tell them of the hope that we have about this wonderful Christmas promise. So Lord, please continue to do your work in us and through us for the sake of your glory and for the joy of your people. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.